I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. We are here in studio again for you guys. We love doing this show. Got a lot of amazing responses. If you guys uh, want to leave us a comment, please do leave it. Star us up. Show some love because we're showing love to you. We don't get paid. We do this because we think it's important. And all the other art podcasts are hard for me to listen to. So, <laughs> but uh, let us know what you want us to talk about. If there's a subject that you're interested in, you're confused by, you want to hear our perspective, yep. we are open to it all. So let us know. So we're here with art historian Lizzie Dastin, uh, myself, Justin Bua, artist. And today, Lizzie chose a topic. <laughs> what a shock. I want to talk about the trope of the portrait. And what a portrait can reveal about the sitter, what perhaps it can reveal about us, the viewer, and maybe what the agenda of the artist was in creating it. When I teach class, when I consume art, I always think about agendas, the power hierarchy between figures within a space. If it's a portrait of one single figure, the hierarchy between the viewer and the sitter. And I think that all of these little dynamics play out really well in portraits. And there are iconic portraits, the most prominent one being, of course, da Vinci's Mona Lisa. And maybe we could talk about that. Why is that the most iconic painting ever, arguably within the context of Western art? And what makes a portrait successful? What makes one unsuccessful? Yeah, I think the Mona Lisa is the most successful because uh, of gossip. You know, I think that there's been so much gossip over the years of, you know, this the tales, this, the mystery, the the is she smiling? Is she does she have something going on? Is there something underneath it all? And and by the way, it doesn't hurt that Leonardo da Vinci painted it, one of the greatest talents uh, of all time. I mean, this is a guy who was a phenomenal anatomist and a phenomenal draftsman and a phenomenal engineer. He he understood physics, he, the concept of gravity and levity. I mean, he explained it all. He wrote cryptically, upside down, backwards, with invisible inks. I mean, the and guy with his was, right hand, didn't he? Yeah, or he was, he his was, left yeah. hand. He, no, he was ambidextrous. He he drew with both hands, and he, you know, he was an inventor, and he was a poet, and he was a philosopher, and he was a vegan. He was a and he was a animal activist, and he was around at a time where the average man was five one, and he was six feet tall and shredded. The most handsome, you know, gay man on, you know, walking down the streets of Florence. And the guy was a fucking god. So you take the context of that and you have him, you know, he's creating the Mona Lisa. It wasn't Joe Blow who never did a good painting besides the Mona Lisa. This is a guy who had created The Last Supper and all. So I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, yes, it's a shroud in the mystery of the man that created it. But also there's something mysterious. It's not the greatest portrait of all time. I'm just, it's just not, you know what I mean? But it has a, it has a story around it that could be the greatest story of all time. And I think that's the difference. I agree that the mystery of Da Vinci that adds to why this painting rose in prominence, but he did a lot of paintings. My favorite of his, the one that I think is most successful is St. Anne. Mm. And that one isn't 
on tons of mouse pads and coffee cups. And so what is it about the Mona Lisa that is such a departure for da Vinci, but also a departure for art? And something that I always credit that to is the fact that she is a contemporary person. And at the time, so da Vinci's working in Italy during the High Renaissance, the subject of most paintings was religiously based. So we have St. Anne, we have the Virgin Mary, we have the Christ child, John the Baptist, and so on. And this woman, it was a private commission. Apparently this woman named Lisa Jacolinda, I think, something mm-hmm. like that. And so the fact that she is contemporary and not spiritual or mythological, that separates this particular work sure. from others. And so then the question begs, why? Why is she being painted and how did this happen? And another thing that's really interesting about it is that it's the first three-quarter length portrait in Western art. Before this time, if there was going to be a portrait, it would either be a bust if it was sculptural or it would be full-bodied if it was painted. And this one ends right around at her torso. And that format had yet to be standardized. And so da Vinci was the first to do that. So that's another departure. And when we see something that feels confusing because it's not what other people are doing, then I think that adds to the mystery and to the lore that da Vinci himself was perpetuating by being such a cool character at the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is definitely the most written about, the best known, but it at a certain point, it's snowballing, right? It's context. So you have this painting that is now the best known painting of all time and it is like you said it's merchandised up the wazoo from wine labels to to mugs to busts to little busts sold everywhere you go to the louvre and it's a tiny painting it's a relatively small painting but it's behind this bulletproof glass like on a podium everybody's taking pictures it's non-reflective glass obviously so you could so you could photograph it and you're not you know you're not uh, degenerating the uh, the painting. But I feel like because of the context of it also, it has so much more legs. Like if you took anybody's painting today and you put it in a museum behind the glass, all of a sudden that's going to be the most talked about piece. It's the centerpiece of the Louvre, right? Oh, yeah. So, yes, I get it. There's a mystery about it. He's painting a contemporary woman. There is that myth a lot. That's that smile. Like what is going on with her smile? That it's kind of creepy, right? That smile. Yeah, because it's a half smile. It's so a it's, half smile, right? What's going on? Is she smirking? Is she happy? Does but she it, know something that we don't? But maybe <laughs> he just painted it that way because it looked better, and he had to move on. Like we don't know why. Is it because he he did? Maybe there wasn't an intent of that expression, that in between, f- confusing expression that could be only figured out in the gray areas of we don't know because we weren't there we never talked to him i want to oh god i wish i could go back and talk to him about that painting <laughs> how many people do right oh he, he kept on nah, that you know it was it wasn't even this it wasn't even that he would be so who knows he could be so dismissive and be like ah oh, that painting sucked right he and could all of a be. sudden and ultimately that doesn't matter but i think the gray area that you mentioned that is really the crux of the why penumbras this of the of the of the real reason to me that's confusing. Yeah, it's this perfect little interplay between concealing and revealing. Yes. We see the Loire Valley in the background, but what's concealed to us is really why that's there. And there's been 
arguments that it's for some kind of political pursuit, but we just don't really know. And we like to create a narrative around a story that is legible. And the Mona Lisa is illegible, and that's why we love it. And that's what you just said. We like to create stories we don't even know. And right there, we don't even know. That's why we're fascinated. I just watched this documentary called The Staircase on Netflix, which is about this murder, this crime, Michael Phillips committed, about this crime that was committed by this guy, killed his wife, or, or did he not kill his wife? And no one ever knows. There's both sides of the story. Ultimately, we still don't know what happened, and that's what makes it so compelling, the, the, the not knowing. And I think that there's a story that will never be told that we love. We love that. So we project our own story onto it. We listen to other people gossip about it. You know, uh, T.S. Eliot has that famous line from Jail for Proof Rock, in the, women, in the room, the women come and, come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Like the gossip and the chatter and the stories and the narratives that are created. And I feel like that's what's going to happen forever with the Mona Lisa, especially now that you have all this momentum and you have it at the arguably the greatest museum as the nucleus of the greatest museum, the centerpiece of the greatest museum of this era. So it's going to be spoke about. Totally. It's a winning equation. And you know, my favorite thing about gossip is gossip plus time equals history. And so this gossip that the Mona Lisa is really Da Vinci in drag, who knows? But I've actually heard He was way better looking than that. (laughs) I I think. I'm not sure. I I think. (laughs) Well, this is a part of the story in the way that it's lived since the time that the paint dried that I really like. In 1911, Apollinaire, who is this really important, essential figure in um, philosophical thought and art, and he was very close friends with Picasso. He was questioned and actually jailed, I believe, for a limited amount of time for stealing the Mona Lisa. Right. And then Picasso was called in, too, yes, for he questioning. Yes, he was. He was. <laughs> they were like, did you steal the Mona Lisa? And he was like, motherfucker, I'm making Mona Lisas. What are you talking about? Why would I need to steal <laughs> that shit? five faces. I don't need just one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the smiles. But um, And also, some... uh, there's still the question of, is that the only and original Mona Lisa? Well, there are two. Right. That's the... that. See, to me, that just keeps adding. Like, that adds to the mythology of it. The fact that Picasso was brought into questioning about uh, the Mona Lisa, that adds to the story, that adds to the narrative, that adds to the fantasy, and that's what we love. Yes. And it's it's priceless. Can you put a price on the Mona Lisa? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably worth, like, I would trade the Mona Lisa for... Paris. That's so weird (laughs) that you said that. I was going to say for the United States. Oh, like all of the U.S. I just got political. Yeah, but I'm saying like that's the level it's at. Like you have to trade a country for that shit. And one of the Louvre's museum workers stole it by putting the Mona Lisa under his coat. And so that guy, <laughs> smart guy, uh, but that gets into the size thing, which I just want to talk about very briefly. And then I think we should go on to other successful or unsuccessful portraits. But everybody... Without a doubt, their first comment when they see the Mona Lisa is, it was so small. And I find that really illuminating because it connects to this idea, this argument, or this supposition that the bigger the work, the more important it is. And isn't the Mona Lisa totally disruptive of that because it is the most iconic Western artwork, and it's small. Exactly. And that's fine, because size does not matter. There you go. That's what (laughs) she said. (laughs) So another portrait that I'd like to talk about is actually, let's talk about a series of them, would be uh, Rembrandt, 
because Rembrandt's self-evaluation with his iconic capturing of his own soul in his own portraiture, his classic self-portraits where he really chronicled his life, himself as a young artist, a middle-aged artist, and an old artist. Beautiful oil paintings, uh, the play of light, the way that it danced across his face uh, as a young man, uh, as a middle-aged man on his bulbous nose, and um, as an old male man on all of his wrinkles and his sadness in his eyes and the wetness of his eyes. Uh, I think Rembrandt is the greatest portrait artist that has ever lived. And also the way that his light source illuminates the forehead, suggesting him as a thinking man. It isn't just the execution of the art from his body, but it is the design of that concept from his head. And that kind of split between the mind and the body, I think, is really elegant and it's poetic. And artists before Rembrandt didn't really chronicle themselves. We do have people who would port, uh, paint a one-off self-portrait, but it's this seriality of Rembrandt's pursuit that I find the most compelling. And getting back to agenda, so the agenda of da Vinci in painting the Mona Lisa is that presumably it was a commission. So what was the agenda of Rembrandt's? Why did he do this? Well, you know, oftentimes when artists do self-portraits, it's, it's a lot simpler than people think. It's A, they don't have the money for a sitter. Uh, but B, I think he was into self-discovery and exploration. I think he was also into trying to make himself a better painter. And what's a better reference than yourself? I don't think that he set out saying, oh, the world is going to see me, uh, chronicle myself, and going to experience that on a visceral, deep level and contextualize it in, in art history as you know, to place himself as, as the most important portrait artist of all time. I think it's more, uh, I'm going to experiment. What a better way to experiment than with myself. I really am interested in paint and, and portraiture and what a better way than to, to paint yourself. I think all artists have always used themselves, uh, to paint. And I think it's, it's easy your sitter's not going to move. You're not going to have to yell, what the fuck are you? Or you have to pay them or you have to move them around. You're there. You know, you are your best model. Oftentimes when I do a painting, I always use my hands because, you know, hands are hard and I like to just look at my hands and the different angles and different perspectives and I could always have a reference for that. And I think that that's uh, imperative with, with an artist. And I think also just, you know, your your if it was for somebody else like if his portraits of his self portraits were were for somebody else it doesn't matter either you know because i i really believe that they were for him they weren't like necessarily going to be shared i mean he did enough of that you know night watch was completely for somebody else a lot of his work was completely for somebody else all of his uh his sexual drawings, you know what I mean, were for quick, quick cash. It was a, it was, it was cash, money to the bill. But this feels more intimate, and it feels more personal, and perhaps that's why we connect to it better because it seems agendaless. Exactly, yeah. or at and least I, that agenda is not tethered to money. Yeah, and I think that he really was about 
you know, this is going to make me, I, I, I want to do it. I want to see myself as an artist for sure. There's that deeper emotional self-exploration. But I think there's also like, where am I now as a painter? It's a great moment of time to, to, to capture, am I technical now? You know, because they got looser. You know, the paintings got looser and they got more abstract, as most artists do. You saw that in Michelangelo's sculpture. You see that in Picasso's work. Uh, you saw it in a lot of, a lot of artists are that Monet, way. Monet, Renoir. Yeah, you don't need many strokes. Like at the end of the day, Rembrandt used way less strokes than he did when he was young. There was less rendering. There was less finicky, you know, noodling. He didn't noodle. He was a he was a a painter with bigger, more powerful, stronger, confident brushstrokes, and I and you see that in his work. So, from an artist, his exploration, his intimate exploration of himself through self portrait, is a great understanding of the technical breakdown of painting. Sure, and as a non artist, but somebody who analyzes the way that art can play into self-awareness and seeing a canvas as really a mirror, I see a psychological maturation of a man who is becoming more comfortable with his own identity, with his own place in the world, and with this concept of the breakdown of the body. I want to talk about another painting. Yeah. Oh, I want to talk about other paintings. Okay, you talk about it first. (laughs) (laughs) So... Your mentioning Rembrandt made me think about early colonial American art because at that time with our country that is newly developing, people moved, they relocated from the Netherlands where they were exposed Mm. to the work of Rembrandt and transplanted themselves in the colonies that would eventually become the United States. So the work that they did was very much tethered to this European expectation which is interesting because they are decidedly moving away from Europe because they want to create something different. They're trying to escape economic and religious persecution. They want their art to be distinguished from Europe, but they don't yet have the tools or the vocabulary to do it. So early colonial portraiture is often very visually linked to European. And the values that are expressed in those portraits are all about the financial reach of the sitter. I'm thinking of this one that's the iconic early colonial portrait. It's of this guy named John Freak. And he looks like this wooden doll. There's no personality in the face. It is the antithesis of a Rembrandt psychological study. And yet what we see is the brooch that he's holding. We see the textures that he and the textiles that he's able to acquire. There's velvet, there's fur, there's lace, there's a starched collar. And so it really becomes about what the sitter, the patron was able to acquire. And then in just a short number of years, we have the colonial master Copley, and he starts going on the portrait scene. And his most iconic work is of Paul Revere. And this is Paul Revere before he would become the hero of the Revolutionary War. And it's when Paul Revere's identity was as a silversmith. And so now the portrait is no longer about what Paul Revere can buy. It's what he made. And just like Rembrandt, where we have that highlight on the forehead, Mm. we also have a light highlight on his hands because he, like Rembrandt, has this split between conceptualizing thinking and then executing, but in a way that is not connected to money. So I love that evolution. Yeah, it's a very wooden portrait. I mean, the... The handling is 
it, it remind it's very stiff, you know what I mean? It reminds me of a hopper figure in the stiffness of it. And that's just how Copley painted, you know what I mean? He was more of a renderer uh, and not as much of a brushwork, you know, painter like a Sargent or a Zorn or a Rembrandt or uh, Franz Halls. Well, all of these people wouldn't work for hundreds of years. So I think for you're sure. right that we look at it with contemporary eyes that he's wooden. But when you see it within the context of colonial art that was happening no, at for sure. that moment, he's a complete master. Absolutely. A master of wooden work. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I, I get it. You know what I mean? He was... He was a he was a folk hero, uh, Paul Revere was, and you know, much like artists do, they paint the heroes and the people who are the you know the the quintessential icons of the era. And if I may move along, I want to talk about one of the most powerful portraits that was actually destroyed in a fire, I think, in uh, 1628, which was the portrait of Henry VIII by the artist Hans Holbein. Do you know that piece? Well, there are multiple versions. There are multiple of that. versions, correct. Uh, but Hans Holbein was a freaking fantastic painter and somebody that we don't really talk about enough. Um, and he painted a lot of the, the, you know, the powerhouses. King Henry VIII. That's a pretty big deal. Imagine if you fuck that portrait up. It's like <laughs> off You're with dead. his head, <laughs> literally. <motherfucker. laughs> like you, you just don't want to fuck that up. You know what I mean? Like, go, I mean, these guys like Goya, who's done some very classical portraits. Uh, Velasquez has done some important portraits and Holbein. And I would, I would think that like, you do not want to fuck this one up. So he made, uh, King Henry the eighth, like a G like he's just standing there. <laughs> like I don't, I run shit. I don't give a fuck. I got all of my gear on. I'm looking super fly. He was like super fly. <laughs> he was like this white fat bearded super fly. Um, Drenched in ice. Yeah, drenched in <laughs> ice. It was like just straight silver. You know what I mean? Straight gold. And he was like a G. And that's how they painted them. It was like a lot of bravado. And a lot, it, was, it was a haughtiness in it. And just a fucking arrogance. But a confidence as well. And also an idealism, because mm. we don't know what Henry VIII looked like. We don't have access to photography at that time. And so this, again, goes back to the agenda of the portrait, because Henry VIII probably didn't look like that with those features. And Right. And so Holbein is painting the perception of Henry VIII, what he wants to suggest in his identity as a leader. And so we see him as this G with fur <laughs> and... Uh, she said G. I know, it's kind of funny. I've never said that before. But we see him as this powerful figure. And at the time, being heavy was an expression of your wealth because mm. you could afford to eat. Mm. And Henry VIII, he suffered from gout because he ate so much. And I doubt he was as normatively attractive as Holbein represents him. Right. And I know Marie Antoinette was not attractive. And yet the portraits of her by people like Vigie Lebrun, which she is a phenomenal female painter, and uh, people who depicted Marie Antoinette did it in a really idealized way because we think of women, we want them to be pretty and delicate. And Marie Antoinette's features were actually a lot heavier and a lot more angular, but there was an agenda that we needed to promote in a stately portrait. And I think the same can be said about Holbein and Henry VIII. And mm -hmm. who knows what he looked like? I bet he had a lot of gross sores and 
I don't know, consequences yeah, I mean, and that's of food. What, and that's what I love about Rembrandt, right? Rembrandt, when he painted himself, he painted himself with like porous skin and a bulbous nose and redness, you know, splotchy marks in his body. You know, when, when he depicted Adam and Eve from the Garden of Earthly Delights, you know, he's got Eve as a pimply ass, you know, cellulite woman, and Adam is like a hairy balls, you know, kind of just like hairy back, you know, human. He humanized everybody, and he wasn't an idyllic painter, and he did that as well with Nightwatch. And so a Rembrandt is telling you the truth, is telling you the real story, you know, and, and this is what I see, and this is how it is. And for sure, uh, Hans Holbein is is... You could say sugarcoating it, literally, you know, like giving a couple of extra layers of beauty to the to the skin, making it a little bit more supple and clean and less porous. And I think artists do that. And I think you have to do that. And certainly uh, I myself, who, who leans more towards naturalism, uh, and I, I really like that. I'm, I'm not great at drawing or painting pretty women or beautiful men, but I, I've done it and I do it because you have to do that. When I was at school at Art Center College of Design, I had a teacher, uh, two teachers, Craig Nelson and Bill Mon. and Bill Mon, they came from the old school 50s when you had to really make sure that the women and the men were idyllic. So the women models would sit there in our class and they would close their eyes and they would hold them for about 10 seconds and then they would open it very slowly like that. So you would never have the fatty tissue above the eyelid. So you wanted to eradicate that. And the way they would do that is the, the teachers would make the models close their eyes, hold it, and open it really slowly so that it would push back the fatty tissue underneath the brow ridge of the eye. So a lot of those techniques I learned because I was kind of like the last generation learning that type of shit because people were still painting back then before too much photography and digital imagery and you could just correct shit in Photoshop and you could just like, you know, up your, your resolution and your brightness and your saturation and just, f you know, fiddle it in photo, Photoshop or procreate. So that was even more so way back in the days, you know, especially illustration, you know, like you have Andrew Loomis and all these great illustrators who were very idyllic painters and Norman Rockwell, who's a little bit in the middle, you know what I mean? He could paint really pretty women, but that wasn't his shit. Like Lion Decker was great at that, and, and Dean Cornwell was great at that, uh, but certainly not. Uh, Rockwell was good at it. He wasn't great at it. But you had to learn these, these tricks and techniques, and certainly if you're painting kings and popes and the aristocracy, you definitely better learn it, Like because like, otherwise you're going to get fucked up. There's definitely... You do not want to be like, well, here you go, you know, Mr. King Henry the the Eighth. <laughs> what is that? Who is that? That doesn't look like me. My skin is beautiful. Everybody tells me that. <laughs> they do, <laughs> right? Like you did. You, you got to bullshit them. You got to lie. You got to you got to make them idyllic. Man, you are so good looking. I had such a great time painting this. That's what you're telling them because that's what they want to hear. They're they're kings. They're egomaniac tyrants. They want to hear. They are. Gorgeous, and they want to see it because, like you said, there was no photography. There was no photography. That was it. That was their legacy on a canvas. And I agree. It is totally for the ego of the sitter, but it's also for the way that the portrait landed in the public space because absolutely, as an audience or as somebody who is governed by Henry VIII, we don't want him to be ugly either. We want to feel confident that he is stately, that he is courageous, that he is a leader. And so I think it is as much for 
the symbol or the symbolism is as much for the ego of the leader as it is for the comfort of the people who are led by him. And if you don't know who we're talking about, you got to look at that one standing portrait of, of Henry VIII where he's drenched in ice and gold and he's got dope calf muscles and he's really broad and he looks like kind of like the <laughs> dope white... Dope calf muscles. I hope someone gets to say that about me sometime. Oh, that Lizzie. She had dope <laughs> you don't, calf you don't, muscles. You don't say that about me. You, have <laughs> shitty, you say shitty calf muscles. I have actually kingly calf muscles. The kind of calf you muscles... You do. I'm looking at them. Yeah, which are like... <laughs> The kind that are like you're you're sitting in a chair and a throne your whole life and you've never got up and walked and you're crawling to the meal table. Tell me my meal. I'm hungry now. Feed me, you peasants, you serfs. I want food now. And you're just like crawling with your upper body because you have no calf strength to hold yourself up. That's me. But anyway, in that portrait that you guys have to check out, it's a lot like, you know, the the rappers from the late 80s. Like, you know, like a Melly Mel. He just looks like Mel, just like rah do 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 bass like kind of that rap super fly look and that's how they want it to be depicted okay so those are only a couple of portraits that we're talking about we have to circle back and talk about more because there's so many great ones and as we talk about this we encourage you please look it up look it up check out who we're talking about because these are important artists, and they have a window. These portraits are a window to the history of not just art history, but all history and stories. They're important. It's powerful. What we're talking about is something that's been done out there in the world that is really, really, really substantial. So check it out. Become part of it and leave us a comment. Peace.